Hi there. You're listening to Development Unplugged, hosted by the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. Here we are providing a platform for cutting-edge thinking and debate on global issues and international cooperation. Whether you're a social sciences major, a journalist in pursuit of answers, a program officer brainstorming on that next project, or the CEO of a nonprofit, this is your source for all things international cooperation. I'm your host, Nick Moyer. On this second episode of our mini-series on innovative development finance, um, we're going to be talking about performance-based financing. And we're going to be doing that with two people who I hope know what they're talking about, um, Emily Measures and David O'Leary. And um, why don't I just ask you both to introduce yourselves first? Sure. So uh, I'm David O'Leary. I head up uh, Impact Investing, Director of Impact Investing at World Vision Canada. And effectively, you know, run a group that is responsible for finding, um, uh, either identifying existing solutions to uh, inequality, poverty um, for the world's most vulnerable that can be financed sustainably and or designing new ones where we can arrange for, you know, sources of financing that are sustainable, i.e. don't require you uh, you know, and when you're at scale, don't require you to keep going back to donors and asking for more money to fund it. Yeah, which is very different from what we know mostly in our sector. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Emily? Great. Thank you. So Emily Measures, I am the project director for NLIFT at Nutrition International. And so our mandate is to deliver high impact, low cost nutrition interventions. Um, and as part of that, we've been increasingly thinking about the efficiency of our interventions. Um, basically, how can we get more nutrition for the money that we have? Um, and so that's really what um, drove us to kind of come into the innovative financing space. Hmm. Thanks. Now, you've both agreed to join a couple of days uh, here as the sectors come together to talk about innovative development finance. There seems there are a lot of things that go into that bucket. And I've asked if you could speak to us specifically about performance-based financing. And I'm going to try to see if I get what that is. And then I'd love to have you react to what my definition is. I mean, I wonder if it's as simple as it sounds that we will pay based on results. And so I think that sounds pretty straightforward. And so a grantor will give money based on uh, expectations of results if those are met. Um, It's interesting too, because it strikes me that it's not just about have you met the outcomes, but have you done it well? And you could build a lot of things into there around what your performance targets are. And and so that there's a sort of quality control component to um, performance-based financing. Does that make sense to you? And please take that definition wherever you think it should go. Yeah, so it makes sense to me. I think uh, that is a simple... Sometimes I think we make these things more complex than they need to be. At the end of the day, we're trying to tie you know, um, you know, the financing funding to achieve the... to really motivate and encourage the type of result that we want. Um, and so that can look and feel a lot of different ways. It can be complex with lots of different parties involved, or it can be very simple between two parties, like a traditional grant. Um, mm. Now, I think that you know the devil's in the details, as is as, as common to hear. And um, in particular, where I think this space has uh, you know challenges is not only the sort of the measurement of the impact, but also then the um, when you get into the business of like, hey, I'm going to try to motivate certain behaviors. I'm going to create incentives to drive a behavior. I think history is just littered with all sorts of examples where you have unintended consequences from, you know, what seems like a pretty straightforward, if then, if I put this carrot here, I'm going to get that reaction. 
and it doesn't play out that way. And so that I think is where, um, aside from just the challenges around measuring our impact and what is that, um, is are we are there unintended consequences of these approaches? Yeah, and and performance based uh, funding really puts incentives front and center, doesn't it? Which is you know we we're familiar with that in civil society incentives, but we don't we're not usually as explicit about using them. Yeah. So I think it's, it's about the incentives, but it's also about the robustness of the data collection as well. I think that's one of the pieces that really drives um, interest in performance-based financing is, is the rigor that's attached to the data and the data collection um, and being able to use that data for decision-making. So really kind of the adaptive management piece of performance-based programs as well, because you have strong data that's coming in regularly, that you're able to kind of use that data to inform course correction throughout the life of the program, which you know, typically we may not normally see in, in, in grant-based programs. So what are some examples of how you've been using that at Nutrition International? So one of the exciting ways in which we've entered this space is um, we are working together with other partners to set up a development impact bond in Cameroon um, to accelerate implementation of kangaroo mother care. So the starting point for us really was um, newborn deaths in Cameroon. At the moment, there are 22,000 deaths a year, um, and uh, most of those result from preterm or low birth weight babies. Um, and the crux of this is that we actually know what um, the solution is. It's uh, kangaroo mother care, which is an evidence-based intervention. Um, and we know that it reduces mortality by 40%. Um, Nutrition International has been working in the KMC space for a number of years now. And one of the challenges that we've had is actually around fundraising for implementation of KMC. And so the development impact bond um, to us represented an interesting um, mechanism or instrument for accessing capital in order to to implement this this intervention so that's a great example and i wonder could you maybe throw another one into the mix david yeah sure so this is a very different mechanism it's a little more straightforward than a development impact bond but your results or performance-based kind of grants is an opportunity set so we have a a project model which is uh, savings and loans groups and so this is how do you address the fact that millions of people across the world don't have access to um, formal financial services uh, which provide all sorts of benefits um, and so we can work in, in communities at World Vision to provide um, to have communities create their kind of own micro cooperative um, in their own communities so it means you know setting up a safe box and members can save and put money into this box and uh, you know it's it's run there's a governance structure and committee there's a lot of training around how do you operationalize this how do you get the legal kind of framework in, in place and then they can sort of people can save into it and then they can lend to others in their communities so some are savers and some are borrowers and you've created a little mini micro bank and this you know has earnings and it pays out to the shareholders of the cooperative um, and so we've got pretty good evidence for that of how what type of impact that has in numerous countries um, and regions. And so, uh, you know, can we but but you, you know, when you receive a grant to fund that type of work, it's traditionally traditional grant funding is here's a bunch of money and report back that you did the things that you said you were going to do with it. And so that will be, you know, all of the, the things that I just sort of mentioned around setting up all those processes and procedures. But what's interesting is if what if we want to make sure that, that that those savings and loans groups are going to the most vulnerable, those who are the most removed 
from um, you know the opportunity to have financial services who are unbanked entirely, or we want it to go to women, or you know we want to make sure that these things are sustainable, that you don't just set it up and then a year later it sort of dissolves because it wasn't run effectively. So how do we encourage those types of outcomes? And so if, what if we, you know, there's a grant to cover the operational costs, but you get a bonus payment if you achieve certain impacts, like X number of women are included, or the percentage of entirely unbanked people that are involved in these savings groups, you know, which are more, usually more remote communities further out, it takes, you know, it's harder, it's more challenging to get to them, um, or, or things like, you know, how long that these things continue to last for longer periods of time. And if there's now a financial incentive to do those things, which may be harder, more time consuming, more expensive, you can tie the, the payments to those results and encourage those types of behaviors. And that's where, so, so we potentially could magnify our impact greatly by tying performance to you know, result, the, the, the payments to, to the results you want to see. Those are two very different examples. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it's interesting because you're, you're revealing here how you can <clears throat> use sort of a performance model um, to deliver outcomes that we may not have been looking for in the first place, that we couldn't have done before. And, and in the case that you gave us, Emily, it was money that you couldn't have accessed before. So we're talking, I mean, it sounds additional in both of those scenarios. Are there are there other reasons why um, you would have chosen those projects? Are, they, like, are those the main benefits, new money in one case, or, or sort of driving new types of results? Are there Are there other reasons why you would choose these programs? Yeah, I think for Nutrition International, it was an opportunity really to to emphasize nutrition outcomes when we're looking at KMC and also to emphasize quality KMC. So there was a lot of discussion in the setup of the DIB um, to ensure that not only were we looking at skin-to-skin contact, but also that exclusive breastfeeding was incorporated as part of the quality KMC package. Um, so that was one aspect to it, is really emphasizing that quality of service delivery component, which the DIV allowed us to do. Um, and then the second was really an emphasis on outcomes. Um, and again, we worked um, very closely with our partners here to ensure that um, the nutrition and health outcomes were incorporated as part of the, the impact of the program. And so within the DIB, there are three payment metrics. The first metric is really a service readiness um, metric. So it's looking at um, the skills and equipment, supplies, the infrastructure uh, that's within that facility, the readiness of that facility to be able to deliver quality KMC. The second metric is looking at the number of newborns that are receiving KMC before discharge. And so really those two metrics um, are quite easy to measure in terms of they're happening within the facility. Um, But we worked closely with partners to ensure that there was a third metric that was included, which is that the baby um, comes back to the facility at 40 weeks and has achieved a healthy target weight. And with that, we're able to ensure that really the baby is receiving quality KMC and that we're seeing the impact on the the newborn as well. I mean, I can just add to that. um, You know, I I think one of the other maybe... Maybe it's intended, or it can be unintended. Sometimes is just getting the 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 rigor that's uh, required to measure your impact. I think is very beneficial beyond 
the immediate opportunity, that immediate mechanism, right? So if we are involved in a DIB or performance-based grant where you're forcing to be able to, to demonstrate impact, define it, measure it, to be able to report back on it, because the payments now mechanisms are tied to it. So that enforces a level of rigor around how you define it and being able to supply the data. And, and so it, all of that, I think, is a good, enforces good, a good discipline on the industry that hasn't had the, the always had the requirement to, right? So if you're raising money from donors, in the past, historically, I don't think donors have been super demanding about you know, rigorous scientific evidence of impact. And same thing, traditional grant funding is tied to report back on your activities, not report back on the impact. Because it's hard. It's hard. It's very, very hard, especially depending on the context you're working. You go into fragile contexts, for instance, yeah, it's very difficult. I'm making that sound easy. But having the, the, the pressure or the, you know, just the accountability to have to do that just ups your game a bit. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly sounds that way. But so, I mean, in, Conceptually, there's a huge value to, in a, and especially in a sector that has struggled to sometimes communicate impact, to be putting that emphasis on impact. But it also, and I think you were alluding to that, it brings up a whole new range of work and complexity that you know maybe in a grant-based environment we haven't been used to. Um, and so I wonder, like, is is the payoff worth the pain, right, of setting up these systems. And I, you know, we can say fairly quickly, you know, there's this development impact bond and it's been set up, but actually, was that not quite complicated to set up? And are, are we not doing things very differently? Um, can we talk a bit about what's different about setting them up? Like, are they, are they a lot more complicated or not? Yeah, so for Nutrition International, I think it's been a journey to get to the point where we've signed our contracts. So we were first approached about the KMC dip in Cameroon in 2016, and it was earlier this year that we signed the contracts around the, the KMC dip. So, you know, we're looking at about three, three and a half years of, of discussions and negotiations in order to get this structure off the ground. Part of that was around finding an appropriate investor. Um, we had approached or been in discussions with two organizations in terms of taking up that investor role, both of which kind of fell through. And so we ended up being in a position where one of our outcomes funders actually switched to the investor role. So there was discussions around that. There was, of course, all of the discussions that took place around setting up the partnership structure and the, the legalese and the contracting that needed to take place between all nine partners. So there's nine partners that are part of the DIB and all of the contracting that had to go around that. Um, and then the third piece was around what are we going to measure? What are we paying for here? And of course, with the investor hat on, they want a more simple or more straightforward metric. So for example, the service readiness metric, um, whereas for Nutrition International, with our outcomes funder hat on, we were actually looking for what's the impact or the change that we want to see from the intervention. So there was a huge amount of negotiations that were taking place, you know, in terms of comparing this with your standard or traditional grant-in, grant-out model. I mean, I think, you know, watch this space. We are just setting up the DIB. We already have a huge amount of learning about what it takes to get to this point. But then in order to be able to really assess the value for money of this type of a financial instrument, I think, is what we're kind of hoping to achieve out of the next two years of implementation. Mm. I mean, maybe I'd, just, I'd, I'd add on to that that... 
I think Dibs have had a fair bit of criticism on the whole first, you know, some of the reasons yeah. Emily's mentioning around the complexity, the cost to do all that. So the cost of this dib versus the, how much money was actually deployed as a result of it. But, you know, on the flip side, hey, like this is brand new. Mm. Like until you like run through a bunch of these and you're going to we're going to like trial and error, we're going to learn things and get better at it. So like these organizations that are involved in that are doing the entire sector and industry a favor because we're learning the learning those lessons. And so, you know, I think it's, we have to be a little bit reasonable with our expectations around like, yeah, we're not going to get it perfect from the start. And if like, that's what you're expecting, I don't know what to tell you, but like, you just had wrong expectations. This is brand new. Sorry. It doesn't work that way. And like, can you give us a minute? We're going to try to figure this out. So you know what? And maybe, maybe it turns out the dibs are just too complex. You know, there's, there's too many parties. There's too much to try to resolve. But I, my guess is that even if that ends up being the case, that there'll be some valuable parts of it will have some really valuable lessons that'll come out that'll be that'll lead to some other thing that you know is is valuable like i think the the exercise the thought yeah. process the things we're figuring out are very valuable whether the dib itself is the thing that solves all our problems or not and i think newsflash it won't solve all our problems even if it's successful um but it's a valuable exercise and so Nutrition International and Grand Challenges Canada and the folks involved in that um, really are doing us all a favor because we're, we're learning. Well, I think that's hugely true. And I mean, we our sector desperately wants to have a larger scale and its impact all across the globe. And, and we're limited by the funding that's available. We say we want to innovate. We say we have a history mm-hmm. of innovating. Mm-hmm. That comes with growing pains, you know, and that's, that's part of the process. And so that learning is hugely valuable. Even if it exists in other sectors, we need to live through it ourselves um, as well. Is it, but do you find that the transaction cost of, of sort of the trying something new in what you were describing, David, around the sort of performance-based grants, is, is that a steep learning curve or is that maybe a little bit more accessible? Um, I think the learning curve is still pretty steep because of the the impact measurement side of things and the rigor around that. It's a lot less complex. Um, I, to me, my guess, you, you probably tell us better, Emily, but there, there's anywhere from six to ten organizations involved in kangaroo mother care dip. Yes, yeah, yeah. nine. Yeah, and and, a, and what we're talking about is a one-to-one relationship between us and Global Affairs Canada. If, if that comes through, those conversations would would involve two two parties. Um, and so uh, potentially, potentially there's a third if they want any kind of independent evaluator, but it's a, the complexity is a lot less, but the, the, you know, the, the, the hurdle around, you know, the measurement of the impact and the importance of, of the data, um, is still a challenge that, you know, we we're, we're, we haven't had a very high bar or threshold placed on us historically, just the, the sector as a whole. And so raising those, is, uh, those expect you know, those, those demands, um, is challenging. And just having the infrastructure and systems to be able to track it all and collect it efficiently. There's an interesting long-term potential if we can all get a lot better at tracking impact. Because we could actually, through that demonstration of greater impact, unlock greater resources. It may, it has arguably one of, been one of the impediments of the international cooperation sector is that the challenge of demonstrating impact uh, in order to, to do more. Um, I, so, you know, I think organizations out there are starting to realize the potential here, but don't necessarily know where to start. I wonder if maybe you'd be willing to share just a few lessons, sort of, you know, looking back, like what 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 were important steps in the process in getting going? I don't know, Emily, would you mind to get us started? Yeah, sure. 
So I think the first would be just about managing expectations in terms of, I think, you know, partnership and collaboration are terms that in the development sector we throw around quite easily. But the reality is that's really hard to do and it's hard to do well. And when you're working on a DIB, you're actually kind of contracting that relationship. You're formalizing it. So it becomes even more challenging. And so really kind of the key takeaway for us was, you know, being very clear around what what our mandate was, what around our agenda was and, and other partners as they were coming to the table together as well. I mean, if you imagine a kind of Venn diagram of all of the nine partners we have on the DIB and looking for that piece of overlap and really kind of focusing efforts and energies on that space, I think that would be the key takeaway. And the other lesson for us or achievement really has been the involvement of the government of Cameroon in the DIB, and this has been really exciting for us. The government was involved in, in a feasibility study in 2015 that was conducted by Grand Challenges Canada which showed a dramatic reduction in newborn deaths. And it was really off of the back of that that the government made the decision that this was an intervention that they wanted to scale nationally. And they looked at various mechanisms for doing that and arrived on the DIB. And so this process has really been about supporting the government not just to implement this intervention, but also to test out this instrument in terms of achieving results for them. And they've been a, a key key driver and a key partner in this DIB um, really from the get-go. And of course, they're also um, an outcomes funder. So the government, along with Nutrition International, are both outcomes funders for this DIB. And so there's a real sense of ownership for the DIB that's taking place in Cameroon, which I think is quite exciting. Yeah, I guess from uh, I have two pieces. One is you know think very carefully around you know this is a big burgeoning growing space and there's a lot of opportunities. So money's in motion. There are opportunities for financing, and it gets tempting to just sort of fire at anything that moves, you know, and sort of think carefully about okay, we where do we want to play? What's our mission? What do we bring to the table? What role do we want to play? Um, so that you're not just sort of going after anything that moves. Uh, so sort of be, think strategically about that. Um, and then the other is like just get started, just try <laughs> something. Like if you if you're waiting for the perfect moment, so these maybe sound like they're mm -hmm. at odds. I would be very specific about what you want to play in and where you want to capitalize. Um, and then once you know that, then just get started. Like as long as it's within that sort of parameter and, and, and fits that, but just start to learn those lessons because like. You're going to try something; it's not going to work out. So, embracing this idea of failure—you know, this is a cliche almost now, right? Because all the talk about entrepreneurship and innovation, like you have to learn to fail fast and all that mm -hmm. stuff. But there's a real like—you have to have a real willingness. And I was going to mention this point earlier and forgot, but like, we, you know, despite the fact that the expectations for the rigor of the impact measurement's been low historically, there has still been a lot of pressure to just like put a like from a marketing standpoint to, you know, to make things look pretty, tell a good donor story. Um, and that doesn't encourage an environment that embraces failure, that looks at it dead on and says, what did we do wrong? How, how could we have gotten better at this? How do we next time we do better? It says, oh, let's paint a nice picture. I'm oversimplifying. I'm being overly reductive. I think the people working in this space are trying to do a good job. But when you've got it back in your mind, you know, resources are strapped. You know that you've, you've got pressure to drive more revenue into your organization. You want to tell a good story. So, like, these things are, are at play. So if we can really just shift the needle to staring our losses in the face, talking about those challenges, learning from them and getting better, um, we need to do that. And that's involved with operating in a new nascent space. You're going to have to learn to f be comfortable with failing. 
Yeah, but failure is uncomfortable to do. It's simple to talk about. It's, yeah, it's a lot harder to do. You know, our sector is under under pressure, and and this space seems to be full of opportunities. You know, innovative development finance. I mean, my gosh, it seems like there's tons of money on the table, but it really does require looking at one's own organization. What is your added value? Where can you operate effectively? And and, and there is a real danger that, that organizations just pursue uh, money because it's on the table as opposed to, to coming at it with, a, with an intent to learn and grow. Um, but I really thank you both for your insights. Um, that was really helpful. I know that our listeners will be turning to your organizations for their experience and many others. So thank you both for sharing your thoughts about how performance-based financing can, can serve in international development. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for that second episode in a three-part mini-series of Development Unplugged as we're talking about innovative development financing. In this episode, we spoke about performance-based financing for NGOs. And tune in next week on our third episode where we'll be talking about gender lens investing, what it means for Global Affairs Canada, and what it means for you as an organization and how you can make a difference in your programming.